Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. Hi, I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week your sermon covered Genesis 3 verses 14 through 24. So our first question is, why do fallen angels not have the opportunity to repent and be redeemed? You know, the scripture never gives us a definitive answer on why angels don't have the opportunity, particularly fallen angels and and Satan and his demons, why they do not have the opportunity to experience redemption like humankind does. And so to some extent, uh, we don't have a definitive answer on that. I think that there are a couple of things that are potential reasons why that's the case. However, two things that come to mind. Number one, Satan, the demons, these fallen angels, they have had a degree of immediate revelation um, to God's presence, to his works of creation, so that their rebellion against God is fully knowing, fully experiencing his character, they chose to reject him and rebel against him. Now, the Bible makes clear all throughout the Old Testament particularly that with increased revelation comes increased responsibility, or Jesus will say it this way in the New Testament, to whom much is given, much will be required. And so I think partly um, Satan and the demons, they have an open-eyed understanding of who God is and still chose to reject and rebel against him. And, And so there seems to be some eternal consequences clearly for that. I'd say also we never read that angels have the image of God. That seems to be something that is entirely unique to the human race, that God created man and woman in his image. And so I believe part of God's redemptive purpose for humankind particularly is redeeming his own fallen image that he has placed in creation and and renewing them in the image of Jesus Christ. And so I think that distinction between angels and humans is part potentially of the reason why humans have the opportunity for redemption that is not extended to angels. What happened to the Garden of Eden? And if it's still around somewhere, is there still an angel guarding it? (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine? You're just out for a stroll somewhere in the Middle East, you come around a corner and there is this angel guard with a sword standing there and you look kind of beyond him and there's this tree of life you know that's i used to think that way growing up of man what were to happen if you were to find this garden is it still there and i think the answer to that question is going to come to us a little bit later in the book of genesis there's going to be this very large event that's about to happen that is going to wipe out the created world as it presently exists that's of course the global flood that takes place during the time of noah And I think once that happens, God destroys the original Garden of Eden uh, along with the rest of creation because it's now been corrupted. But one thing from that garden uh, that is taken from it and that appears later is the tree of life. So we'll see that tree again in the book of Revelation uh, in the new creation, new heavens, new earth, new city. Uh, But I believe that the present Garden of Eden or the, the previous Garden of Eden no longer exists on the earth, that it was destroyed with the rest of the created world in the flood. Being that God is all-knowing, was it within his plan to create angels and then allow them to sin, therefore allowing Satan to tempt Eve, knowing that this would ultimately lead to the sin of mankind? 
Yeah, and these are some of the really difficult questions that we arrive at when we're we're trying to balance the sovereignty of God and the fact that he knows all things, that he has planned all things, that is the scripture tells us all things happen according to the the full discretion of the will of God. And yet evil, suffering, the curse, the fall, all have entered into our world. So how much responsibility does God have for these things that have taken place? I think what we can what we can simply say is that it was within the plan of God uh, for all that has happened in world history and redemptive history to have happened. Now, when we speak about the will of God, there are different types or aspects, we might more accurately say, of God's will. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> um, it's never my desire for my children to experience the pain that discipline brings and the various loss of uh, privileges or, or the consequences that happen as a result of, of things that, that they may do. Um, and yet, it is also my will to discipline my children to provide consequences for disobedience because I desire them uh, my greater desire for them is that they learn what happens as a result of, of their disobedience or their rebellion, their sin. And so I have two types of, of my will or two aspects of my will, the will that would never have my children experience consequences, but the greater will that that they would experience consequences if that would reshape their character in ways that I know are for their ultimate good. We aren't always able to understand the ultimate goodness of God's purposes from our finite human perspective. And so we sometimes struggle to rationalize how can God be good and loving and just and all-knowing and all-powerful and this be the plan, that there be suffering and evil in the world. But we know that it is for the good, the ultimate good, because God ordained it that way. We know that apparently it is better for us to have had a choice, just as it was better for the angels to have a choice, because God ordained it that way. And we know that God knew all of this would happen. It didn't catch any of him by surprise, because as we read later in the scriptures, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And the Lamb is only slain because there is going to be a need to atone and justify sinners. And God was not only willing to create knowing that this would happen, but he was willing to create knowing what it would cost him. And so the gospel that we see foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15 was God's eternal plan to redeem us knowing exactly what would happen yeah, in the world that he created. In Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. This refers to both physical and spiritual death. And in your sermon, you talked about how Adam and Eve's physical death was not immediate, but wasn't their spiritual death immediate? Yeah, and, and, and I would say two things there. One, their physical death begins immediately. So the clock on their mortality begins the moment they partake of, of the forbidden fruit. Their bodies begin to be corrupted like along with the rest of the created world. And so they are now on a, a physical path to death. It won't be fully realized till later, but they're now on that pathway. In answer to the, the question that the listener is asking, yes, absolutely, spiritual death uh, begins immediately uh, upon their tasting of the forbidden fruit. And we see this principally in the separation and the brokenness that immediately enters into relationships. So they're cut off now from the level of, of openness that they enjoyed with one another. They seek to cover themselves so they have something to hide from each other. 
And then they do actually seek a place of hiding so that God will not see them. And they no longer want to know and be known by God in the same way that they experienced this relationship before. They're afraid that God will see them. And what a sad reality that is. They were created to experience the immediate presence of God and this joy that comes from being seen and known in your every particular by the one who made you and delights in you and you were created to delight in. And now being seen by God is unbearable to them. That speaks to the spiritual death that has already begun to happen. This degree of separation that is now spiraling into this brokenness in the relationship with each other and with God. But thanks be to God, we will not be left either in our, our physical death or our spiritual death, but that for those who are united in Christ, there is a physical and a spiritual resurrection that occurs through his resurrection from the dead. What is the difference between annihilation and separation in regard to sin and death in a biblical context? Because many false religions believe that we simply cease to exist after death, and that would be described more like annihilation. Yeah, so annihilation is the immediate destruction of something so that it no longer exists. That is perhaps what Satan expected God would do to the man and woman. And maybe that is even something along the lines of what Adam and Eve expected God would do to them. Um, I think God fulfills his word unexpectedly in Genesis 3, um, that while he has promised that they will surely die, and they will, and God is being faithful to his word, it isn't this immediate, complete annihilation. They are not They are not just going to suddenly exist and then immediately no longer exist. So it is not annihilation that is going to happen, but it is separation. And so there, these are two different concepts. Separation being this relational distance that now creates between man and God and between man and man. Separation that is introduced because of sin and unrighteousness and corruption so that now there is this infinite chasm that has opened between the moral condition of the man and the woman that they are now in and the holy, righteous, perfect God who made and fashioned them. And that that chasm is going to be needed need to be bridged. It's going to need to be covered in a way that they cannot. And that is what anticipates, of course, the the righteous man, the seed of the woman to come. Uh, But God is not going to annihilate them, nor is he going to annihilate them in the future. Uh, They will experience death, but everyone is going to experience resurrection from that death. The question is, will it be resurrection to eternal life in the presence of God, and so that separation has been resolved through the blood and, and body of Christ? Or will you be resurrected, but not to eternal abundance of life, but to eternal conscious suffering, that the separation has now been solidified and eternally uh, placed upon you as a judgment for your sin because you have not come to faith in Christ. That really is the question. Annihilation is not something that God does in relation to humankind. Many other religions uh, view annihilation as, as a means of God's justice, but our sin deserves eternal conscious judgment under God's wrath, uh, and that's either satisfied through the cross or it's satisfied in hell. For our final question, did the second law of thermodynamics come into existence immediately after the fall? 
If it did, does the statement that Jesus holds all things together now refer to his control of it? And how does that change with the new heaven and new earth described in Revelation and by Peter? Well, I do not claim to be any kind of scientific expert. So in very layman's terms, let's define for the purpose of this conversation, the second law of thermodynamics as speaking of the fact that all things deteriorate and that uh, without the intentional use, uh, informative use of, of energy, things will continue to um, be corrupted, deteriorate, to um, no longer function as well as they are currently, that there is this ongoing decay that happens. I think as we're thinking about a scientific law, we need to understand, number one, the scientific laws that we see operating in the world today are ways of describing the orderly structure of our world and the way that it, it continues, things continue to be in relation to one another. That does not necessarily describe the pre-fall world. So the laws by which God governed and organized the universe and his creation of it are probably different today post-fall than they were in the pre-fall world. And so there are ways in which um, we can observably see the chaos that the creation has been resubjected to as a result of sin. One of those is what is observed in the second law of thermodynamics, that unless unless there is an intentional effort to restore things, they gradually decay, are corrupted, uh, increasingly grow inefficient, all of those sorts of things. We see that in every aspect of the universe. This, the common grace of God, that is when we refer to God's common grace, that he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that he sustains the universe by the word of his power, which our listener asks here. These are are ways by which God allows the world that is corrupted by sin to not be as bad as it could be, that it is still livable for us. And so one of the ways that, that, that happens is that God continues to restrain all of the effects of sin from being as bad as they could be. And I, I think one of the ways that, that that likely happens is through what we refer to as the second law of thermodynamics, which is really just an observation about the way that the world works. So while things continue to decay and grow from and grow worse because of the results of corruption, um, God, through the work of Jesus Christ, continues to sustain the universe by the word of his power so that things do not unravel to the full extent that they could apart from his constant intervention on our behalf. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.